You're listening to The Breakthrough Pod, the show dedicated to help you learn, grow, and become the best version of yourself. We share inspirational stories, strategies to overcome failure, and life lessons from truly amazing people. Let's get started with your host and founder of Student Breakthrough, Sam Moynet. Hello and welcome to episode three of The Breakthrough Pod with me, your host, Sam Moynet. In this episode, I'm joined by Sean Franklin, an amazing guy with such a powerful story. Sean served in the British Army for seven years and did two tours of Afghanistan. In this podcast, he shares all about his army experiences, what it was like to leave the British Army and his battles with post-traumatic stress disorder. Sean has overcome some major challenges to now run a successful gym and wellbeing company called Chamber Health and Wellbeing. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's an amazing, amazing listen and live your best life. Sean, I'd like you to just start with what made you make the decision to join the British Army? Okay, yeah. Um, well, I was a bit lost at school, to be honest. Um, my brother was very academic. Uh, he's a few years older than me. Um, and he's re- really academic and, you know, read a book and he'll take it all in. Hence where he is today with, with what he does. And he's very smart and obviously transferable skills for him into a career now. Um, for me at an early age, I wasn't like that. Um, very physical. I enjoyed the physical side of, side of things. And that's how I learn as well. So school was a bit difficult at times for me. Um, I found the, the subjects that were practical. I was very good at music. I was quite good at art and, and PE and things. And I really excelled in those. And it was, I'd finished my GCSEs. I was a bit unsure. I hadn't quite got the GCSEs that I'd wanted. Um, started doing A-level, started the first year, and it, it just didn't feel right for me at that time. Um, I secluded myself a lot from my friends. I would lock myself away in the art room for hours. Um, and I had my, my long hair at the time, long straightened hair and my heavy metal music. And yeah, I was just, I was losing a bit of my personality, to be honest. Um, there was... There was some mild self-harm in there as well, which I got caught out by my art teacher at the time. Um, and I say mild because it, it was just enough to get my anger out. It, it was enough for me just to sort of express that emotion. Um, so I wasn't heard, to be honest, because if I started throwing things around my room at home, that wasn't, that was good, just going to draw the attention that I didn't want. Um, just quickly, if you don't mind, what, um, what made you feel so angry at that age? You know what, at the time... I, I don't know. It was maybe I was a little bit lost with what I was doing. You know, I was unhappy in, in school and it felt that the only route for me was to do my A-levels and then go to university. And that's all it was geared up for. Mm. And I just something didn't feel right. I didn't want to do that. I, I tried doing a couple of days with a plumber to see if I, I was into that. And that, that wasn't for me either. So I was just a bit confused, I think. Um, had all this pressure you know, coming at me and I had a couple of friends that had joined the army and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I was stood, I remember I was stood on a rainy night in, in Asda car park. I was a trolley porter at the time. Um, and I was talking to one of my friends there and I said, let's join the army. We'll do it together. Um, in the end I joined and he never did. Um, it was, it was definitely the best decision for me. And I remember it was in the summer. My mum had said to me, you, you're going back to school in September. I said, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going. Um, so she went, fine, you're going to have, you know, a full-time job. And I said, well, that's fine. I've, I've already got one lined up. She went, oh, great. What is it? I said, I've got my final interview for the army next week. <laughs> and she just, her face just dropped. Um, 
I think for me, I just, I just needed to get out. I needed something new. I needed a challenge, a complete sort of change to my life. And it, it definitely gave that straight away. As soon as I'd made the decision that I was going to join, there was a change. There was a change in my mindset. Uh, it quickly shifted from, you know, that self-harm and almost depressive kind of mindset into, okay, I'm focused. I want to, I want to keep my fitness up. I was very sporty anyway, but I want to get better and better and better. So when I join and when I go, I'm, I'm the best soldier I can be. Um, and it was, it was certainly a mind shift there and then for me. So what was, obviously you had a bit of like loss of direction and a bit of boredom with Asda. Yeah. yeah. Was it the classic thing with the army that it was this kind of adventure for you? And, you know, that's one of the main reasons that people joined, yeah. I think. Yeah, I'd had friends, friends that had joined already within their short space of time of being there. Um, I'd managed to go overseas for an exercise. So just training for, for something. And I knew that there were tours coming up. You know, the regiment that I wanted to join um, had already been on a tour. So I knew there was, there was more coming up. And it was quite a kinetic period over in Afghanistan. So I thought, well, this is a good opportunity now to join. Um, and the regiment that I joined, I got to, you know, guard the Queen as well and got to do all of that in my time. So that appealed to me. Both sides of the job mm. appealed to me. Um, and it was something completely different. You know, I had grandparents in the army. Um, and I just thought, well, yeah, I'll just go for it. Because I was kind of, you know, my story and I shared that yes, on the introductory yeah. podcast. That yeah. For me, it was, it was a lot of family history there that was really driving me to do it. I don't think it was my decision in some ways. It was more sort yeah. of, it's what my old man's done. It's what my family have done in the past. And yeah. yeah, I was obviously sucked in with the adventure and all of that as well. And looking back, obviously, it was a massive blessing for me. But, yeah. you know, I massively respect people who did make that choice and, and did go down that route. So mm. let's actually jump into, like, what it was like first going into yeah. the regiment or um, anything like that. So, yeah, when I, when I first started going, it was, a, it was a couple of weeks before I was joining and the hair had to come off. So you imagine your long sort of stick on kind of Lego hair. I mean, I think you've seen the photo anyway, probably. It was a bit similar to yours, actually. Um, that, was, that was shaved off and, and I was ready to go. I turned up on day one and met my instructor and the tone was set there, there straight away. My mum was in tears because she thought she was going to get a tour of camp and I was taken, taken off straight away. Um, and very quickly, it's a really surreal feeling. You turn up and you're around all these people that are your that are similar ages, some a bit older, some, you know, some your age, and you're all nervous and you've all come from different backgrounds, completely different backgrounds, and you're flung into this environment and your instructor is like God. You know, they're, they're God-like. You listen to everything. They show you everything from how to shave, how to brush your teeth, how to wash, and they demonstrate all of it. They show you every single bit, you know, because to them, if they've taught you and they've explained it in the right way, you can't get it wrong. And so if you did get it wrong, well, then it's is punishable. But at the same time, that they know they've explained. Um, and from there, from day one, I just it was something I hooked into. That bit of discipline I needed. The, the sports side of it, I wasn't anywhere near as fit as I thought I was. Um, that first run out on the training area up in Catrick, and any infantry soldier that goes up there knows what that training area is like. And, it's really unforgiving that the weather and the terrain just hits you straight away. And it hit me like a freight train. And that first run, I think I failed the first run. And I thought, oh, this is not going to go very well. I remember phoning my mum two or three days in, trying to hold back the tears, thinking of I made the right decision. Um, but as the weeks went by, I really, really got stuck into it and really enjoyed it. And when I came out of training, I'd completely changed. And it was the odd weekend off that I started to notice a, a bit of change, a bit of social change for me. Um, it wasn't the change in my friends that 
had affected me. It was a change in me. I don't, I don't know what it was, but I felt that there was something bigger for me, a sort of a higher purpose that I was going towards. And at the time, there may be a bit of arrogance in a way, maybe, because I was very young and this is, you know, I'm doing all this. I get to go away in the week and I'm firing weapons and I'm doing all these different things. And I was seeing my friends and I don't know, I just felt a bit secluded from them. And again, it was, it was the change in my head, not, not, that, not theirs as such. Um, and I, once I'd passed out of training, within two months, I'd been flown off to the Falklands, um, which was more of a training exercise than anything else. So that I, you know, compared to when your dad went, and uh, it's, it's quite busy for him when he went over. Few less um, people shooting at you, I think. More penguins. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> uh, I've seen a lot of penguins. Um, you know, and Falklands was great because it was my first experience for myself and my family of military life. I was away for Christmas, um, and you know, so it was the first experience for all of us to deal with that, and I loved it. I've, I felt at home. I loved it. I'd, you know, I'd built this friendship, friendship up with guys that I'd been in training with and guys that I hadn't, but you were all quite similar, whether you knew them or not. And it's the same as when you meet other people in the military, there's this likeness about you. Um, and there's something that draws you to them. So I was absolutely loving it. Um, and then it was just training exercise after training exercise right up until sort of September 2009. And that's when I went away on my first operational tour to Afghanistan. How do you find out you're going on tour, by the way, to Afghanistan, for instance? Um, so, so regiments and battle groups will be made up and they'll be given their forecast of events almost. So this is what's going to happen for X amount of, you know, for the next year, two years, whatever. This is what you're going to do. And it's more of a training calendar. Um, so, you know, in, in the December, you might go away to the Falkland Islands and come back. And then in the January, you might be training in Brecon Beacons. And it's all building up to a set date that you've been given for a tour. So you know in advance when you're going. Um, so, for instance, in the Falkland Islands, I knew there was a tour in September of 2009. So I was hoping that I was going to be moved into my regiment ready to go, um, which luckily I was in the new year. And then it was all just a build-up then. It's all just a build-up. And, and then, yeah, you get to go away. What was your regiment, by the way? Uh, the Grenadier Guards. Grenadier Guards. Grenadier Guards, yeah. So what was it like? I mean, that's, for me, someone who never experienced, has ever experienced that, I'm assuming by the tone of your voice, that moment you were actually quite excited to go. It's what you've been yeah. training for, it's yeah. what you wanted. Yeah, it's finally the, the, the real deal sort of thing. You're, you're going to get to go away. You get the, at the time, the desert combats. You know, everyone getting a photo straight away in their desert combats. It's different. <laughs> and everyone knows. It was at a time that it was so busy that you see someone in desert combats, you knew that's what they were, they were going to do. And so for us as a soldier, and as, as an infantry soldier, it was probably the most exciting time. Mm -hmm. um, even the guys that had been before the tour that we were about to go on would be very different. Um, you know, they went in the summer and things had changed the way the warfare was, was going down was changing all the time. So they were still excited because it was new. Um, and they'd probably forgot, um, certain elements of their first tour by that stage, you know, it was a good 18 months or so since they'd been. So I think they'd forgot many elements and how they felt during that time. So their excitement was still there for this, for this tour. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, at what point does the excitement change to, I guess, nervousness or fear? Um, it first kicked in as you're flying into Afghanistan. You know, the, the, window, you know, the window visors come down, the lights go off, um, your body armor goes on. Now, this is just your travel body armor. It's like a lightweight version uh, with one little plate in there. So that goes on, your helmet goes on, and very quickly... 
you're sort of thinking, oh, this is, this is a bit different. And you're looking around then, and that's when it's hit the people that have been before. They're sat there going, why have, why have we done this again? You know, that's the, that's the first bit, you know. Uh, you get off, then it sort of subsides. You, you get off the plane um, and you're into sort of a bit of acclimatisation. And so it's still, again, it's, it's just completely new. It's exciting. We're in Camp Bastion, this, you know, this massive camp that's got a coffee shop in. It's got Pizza Hut. It's got all these different things. Um, and you're just, you're just training. So, so you're still not really feeling the full effect and you're still excited. And for me... You know, I went out on the ground. We took over the Welsh Guards that just finished a really kinetic tour. I met one of my old instructors from training, finishing his tour, and he was visibly, visibly stressed. Uh, that had a really tough time on on their tour, really, really tough. And in the summer, it gets much worse in Afghanistan. It's really kinetic. The fighting is quite busy. What does um, just listen? What, what does kinetic mean? So just there's a lot of fighting. Okay, so a, lot, a lot of fighting between sides, um, and the summer is is much worse that the season of the summer is, is much worse. Um, and so they, you know, you start to get little signs there. I've seen guys that I was in training with who are in a different regiment. And again, they looked stressed and I just thought, well, maybe they've just had a tough time or maybe the way they've reacted to it is, you know, that's just them. We'll be okay. Um, and then I had my, I had my birthday. And then two days later we, we flew out, um, via a Chinook helicopter out to where we were first based uh, in Afghanistan, which was a forward operating base. And it's, it's enough to give you protection. It's enough for you to sleep up to, we had a, a whole company there. So up to say hundred, 120 people. Um, and within your company, you're then broken down to then do your daily tasks. That's when it kicked in within, within three days, we had one of the platoon sergeants fall into a fire pit. And so the fire pit, for people that don't understand, listen to this, is when you're out on the front line, you burn all of your rubbish. Okay, you burn your ration packs, your water bottles, everything gets burned in that location. So you dig a fire pit and, and that's how you get rid of everything. And he went to throw some, some kerosene into the fire pit to relight it. He slipped down the bank and goes into the pit up in flames. Um, and then very quickly, you know, the panic sort of sets in. And that was my first, a couple of days in, that was my first experience then of a casualty you know a lot happens in those few minutes a lot can a lot can change um luckily today's you know he's still fighting fit today he's got a couple of couple of scars from it but you know he's, he's still fighting fit um as far as i'm aware still in the army now um and then you know you think okay well well i can deal with that that was all right um and at the time i was sat with one of my good friends jamie when that happened we were playing cards um, I'm still a terrible card player. That's not changed. Um, and we were like, blimey, yeah, that's just really kicked in. And Jamie was good for me because Jamie had been on the, on the last tour. He'd experienced the first bit of the last tour. So it was good to be around someone like him, you know, senior soldier to me. He was a point man in his section. So he was the first man. He had the, the Valum, which is the metal detector. Um, because the big threat out there was um, improvised explosive devices. So things that the Taliban would bury under the ground and at the time a lot of them were made with metal so you could pick them up in the metal detector um but gradually they grew smarter you know and look for instance on my next tour when we go into that there was there was no metal in some of those explosives but it was sort of seven days after that when it really hit and then jamie was killed so jamie was blown up um he went out early in the morning and they seemed to know where they were going 
the Taliban seemed to be perfectly placed. IED went off, blew Jamie up, um, and subsequently three people behind him were injured as well. Um, he was alive when put onto the, onto the helicopter, but then died either en route or when he got to Camp Bastion. Uh, he'd lost multiple limbs. I don't, I don't really think he had any of his limbs left, and the internal injuries would have just been catastrophic. And you know, the other three people that were shoved on the Chinook with him who also had life-changing injuries, and it was hit and miss with them. And so for us that were left then, you don't know how they are. You, you know, you're trying to figure out what's gone wrong. The section commanders and you know, platoon commander are going through their reports and trying to figure out what's, what's happened. And it's all just a bit of a blur. Everything gets shut down. So there's no phone contact out. So if you've got satellite phones, that gets cut straight away. A thing called Op Minimize is called. And they call Op Minimize all around the bases in Afghanistan or, or on any tour, to be honest, so that no information gets out to the wrong people. So if there was another person called Jamie with a you know, second name and they died and someone had phoned, you'd never want to get a mix-up. You don't want to mix up the families and it's just not worth it. Um, until the loved ones have been informed, you know, we can't contact anyone. Um, the only saving grace we do have, and I always said this to my parents, they all get a text from the welfare team in our regiment to let them know that someone has been injured or killed, you know, whatever the injury. But I said to them, as long as you're getting the text, you know that I'm okay. As long as you're getting that text, you know that I am okay. Um, you know, and I, I reiterated it to them on the phone that night. We were allowed to phone. So our platoon were allowed on the phones um, and they said to me, oh my God, there's been a death. There's, there's, you know, there's been injuries. What's going on? What's going on? And I said, well, yeah, that's us. That, that, was, that was our guys. Um, and I think that was my first experience and their first experience as, as their sort of their youngest being involved in something that was quite serious. Um, how did you, I guess obviously reflection is different, but how did you respond to that news at the time? You, you don't really have too much time to think. Um, they know they've hurt you. They've seen the, the helicopters come in. They know they've caused injuries or deaths. Or, you know, they know that. They've had a success. They've probably filmed the attack. You know, they like to film a lot of things. So you are boots straight back on, out on the ground as quick as you can. There's no what's that? Like, impose yourself again on? Yeah, yeah. And you're straight back out there. And there's this bit of, there's a weird energy. You've got this moment of, you know, sort of, you sink down a little bit and you feel a bit low, but then there's this, let's go and get them. Mm. You know, let's, you're not going to let me feel like this. You're not going to do this. We're not going to let you succeed and do this time and time again. And so you're back out on the ground and you're back in your patrol and going through your job and your section commanders are constantly trying to coach you and just keep you calm in that situation because you want to get worked up. But at the same time, not every single person out there is there, you know, is there to kill you. Mm. It feels like that but not everyone is. And it's trying to remind yourself of that. And these are all new emotions that are coming in. All this excitement has changed drastically. And all of a sudden, it's very serious. And all of a sudden, people are starting to think of their R&R that's coming up in a few months' time. And, you know, can I make it to get home? You know, and now one of your friends has just been blown up very quickly. That IED um, scenario that you've been training for for months, you know, digging into the ground, learning how to recognize the signs in the ground for disturbance, how someone dug something in, all of that training is now, it's real. IEDs are real. It's not just this enemy that we've talked about, it's actually there and it's, it's hit us. And so very quickly, 
you grow up, you know, I've got old photos of me when I first go out and I look really young and then all of a sudden you just think, oh, what's happened? I mean, look at me now, you know, how it have changed <laughs> over the years. Um, so what was it like that first patrol after um, what happened to Jamie for you? Um, everyone was a bit pumped up, very on edge. Um, there's this sort of, you, you're quite paranoid. You up your game. So it, there's a good and a bad thing for it. You know, the bad thing is the tragic sort of incident and what what's happened but the knock-on effect and like with any sort of tragedy that happens people change the way they do things and so we were very on our game with everything you know our checks are they're called fives and twenties when you take you take a knee and you know you're five meters and 20 meters and you're constantly looking around um for any danger and by what i mean danger not just people not just taliban but any disturbance you know any difference in in the ground in front, in the buildings, in the trees, in the grass, you're looking for every single bit of detail. And it's, it's almost like you're photographing it with your mind. So when you go back out again, you know if something looks different. And it's amazing how much the brain can remember, especially when you're in that environment and you have to remember. It's amazing how much you do. Um, and so that first patrol was... was sort of a big middle finger up to the Taliban because you know you're being watched they know you know they can see you they can always see you um and just getting the nerves back out again getting rid of those nerves and just getting back into it because it's a long old time you know that was 10 days into the tour you know and it's and we weren't going home till April and this was in September so you're in that forward position that's not in Bastion right yeah so how yeah. long do you spend out there uh it could, you could spend your whole tour out there what, in that one location, yeah, or you yeah. could, or you can move around. That so that that forward operating base was for the for the company. So 100, 120 people and your attachments that you've got with you, and then as a platoon, you would be sent out to take over sort of temporary positions. So you would take over a small Afghan compound, so a farmer's compound that he was living in. You'd pay pay them to to live there, and then you'd build up your defences with sandbags, and then you'd live rough almost from there. So you'd have your main company base and then they would push out smaller bases um, mm. just to improve your footprint on the area um, and cover all of your arcs as well. So obviously that was quite like a, a stressful situation right at the start. Yeah. What else happened during the next, I guess, you know, six months on that tour? Um, so after that, you sort of, you, you start enjoying it a little bit again. You, you get into more contacts, which is contact with the enemy and they're firing back at you and, the adrenaline rush is like nothing else you'll ever experience. And there's fear. There's a lot of fear there. But then there's this enjoyment. And there was times where you're almost laughing to each other about it because you're in this situation. Your only choice is to take action and to dissolve that situation. But you sort of find a bit of humor in it. And I don't know if it's the, the squaddy way, you know, the military sort of banter, because you have to find the positive in that situation. Um, and yes, when things go wrong and a lot of things start to go wrong and, you know, there were deaths and injuries and, but you always have to find, find the humor in it. And there's a story I'll, I'll tell you in a bit about one of my best friends in the second tour, um, that just brings out that side of the military humor. Um, but it was about sort of two months after that and our regimental sergeant major. So, you know, the top guy of the battalion, know just below the commanding officer you know this is the the big guy and he's probably the biggest scariest man i've ever met to be honest um you know he was well known across uh, across the military and just a really good soldier um he was killed 
in November, the November by a Taliban who was posing as an Afghan policeman who had been sleeping in the same compound, you know, as, as these soldiers and just playing the game, you know, pretending to be this policeman, but actually he was rogue. Um, and it's once everyone got back into the compound and it took off their body armor and that's when he opened up and, and killed a few of them. Um, and now for us to hear this, you know, we were, we were elsewhere at the time and for us to hear this and we were working with Afghan policemen and, and the ANA, the Afghan army, and very quickly, every single person's an enemy again. You know, this trust that you build up with these people just hits back home that are these really here to help us or are they here to trick us? Are they going to take every opportunity, a bit like the farmers that have been helping you, that you've been collecting some, you know, you get cans of pop off the farmers and pay them in dollars. They don't accept pounds over there. They don't accept dollars. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, all this paranoia floods back in again. It's when things like that happen and it's continuous over the talk. You've got these things happening all the time. So mix the paranoia in with what's going on around you and the fighting. You've then got other news that floods in. And you just think, do these people really want us here? Um, and it's quite a damaging mindset to, to fall into because there's a lot of good people, a lot of people that really want to help their country. And you're continuously conflicted with this. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things to deal with while you're out there because yeah, yeah i think for, for me hearing that it's something i you don't really appreciate or think about you know as a civilian you think about the ieds i guess getting shot at right yeah um engaging the enemy but you don't actually think about the the instant lack of trust or having to work with different yeah. people from different yeah. you know different countries and yeah. i know you guys were training you were training the army you were training the police is that correct yeah 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 and you know and that's uh, you know that's the thing you've got so many good people within that there's so many good afghan policemen that just want to do good and there's so many the ana were fantastic the afghan army were absolutely brilliant and they were losing people left right and center far more than we ever did um but they're just their enthusiasm to want to learn and to to save their country but it's just the you know the one or two bad people that jump in and get involved and it has such a huge impact. And they must feel the stress as well. Mm. You know, they'll feel the stress of one of their own that's gone rogue, um, which, is, which is hard on them as, as much as it is on us as well. Uh, um, what was it like coming home after that first tour? Um, yeah, that, that, that is where the huge, you know, I spoke earlier about the, the social change with my friends just from training. That's where it really hit home then. That's where the paranoia sort of kicked in for me. Um, I didn't really want to be around any of my friends. It was hard to be around them. It's hard to be around my family. Um, and again, everything that you've gone through is then transferred when you get home. And I just didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel safe. But when I was around my friends in the army, I had all these same issues, but so did they. And you felt safe around them, which is why probably now, you know, when you meet people, you know, when ex-military meet ex-military, regardless of their trade, there's this instant connection because you know no matter what they've got your back and that's not to say that any of my civilian friends wouldn't have ever had my back that's not i'm not saying that but it didn't feel like that um and there's a great deal of resentment and again that sort of arrogance comes back and you know as a as someone in the military just 
you just feel like, well, I've got my things to deal with and you'll never understand. And it's quite an aggressive way to look at it. You'll never understand. Mm. But why should they understand? You know, it, must why hard, though. it must be so hard though being in that environment you know the paranoia the stress that, that you know putting your, your life on the line effectively and then coming back yeah. and everything's i guess normal normal everyone's just cracking on with their lives yeah and it, it is really stressful i remember we, we got back from that first tour and we pulled in you know we were based in central london at the time and we pulled into the camp and there was no families waiting for us to welcome us home. There was, there was nothing there. We got off the coach and we were told to go straight up to the canteen, um, which we signed over all of our documents. I remember trying to, they were trying to cheer us up with a box of cream eggs because it was around Easter time. And they said, right, go to the ISO containers. You'll get all of your boxes out. So all of your room before the tour was packed into boxes. Go and get your boxes out. Um, you're back in green combats first thing tomorrow, ironed. And you will be inspected. So we'd come back of tour. We'd only had 24 hours in Cyprus as decompression, which they say is to get you back into, which, which is phenomenal. Just it's a good 24 hours, but it doesn't help. Um, and then all of a sudden we're being told that you, it's a Sunday night. I think it was a Sunday night. And you're being told that you need to be in iron combats in the morning. No one had an iron because a bit like when you're moving, you just sort of throw everything and think, I worry about that. You know, yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I need to worry about it. And straight away, we were thinking, what was going on? And we were straight into the beat-up training for the Queen's birthday parade because it was our year. And so we, we didn't really get any time off. For the next sort of three months, we built up to this birthday parade. And there was a lot of drama, a lot of people getting drunken into violent sort of scraps outside of camp, you know, based in central London. You're going to go out and drink, um, especially with the kind of culture of it as well. And it just felt like we were just shoved straight back into the ceremonial side of our job and not given any time with our families or to really relax or sort of take heed of what happened to us. Um, and for everyone listening, the, the job you were doing is the big bear skin. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, Queen's Birthday Parade, um, which is a phenomenal parade. And you know what? It was actually, that's the best parade I think we'd ever done. Um, it, yeah, it was it was fantastic and what an event to do that's probably one of my favorite things to do um something i like all of that uh so yeah wow. that was that was fun what was it like seeing your mum and dad for the first time after that tour um yeah i, I think it was all right for me they were i think they had seen a, a big change in me um but i just you know it was a, it was a new me almost i didn't feel too too different um, especially around my military friends. And so there was things I maybe didn't notice. Uh, my language was very different. You know, I've never, I never swear in front of my parents, um, but I was finding it harder and harder not to swear in front of them because in the military, every second word is a swear word. That's how you communicate with each other. Um, <laughs> and so that, that, was, that was probably the hardest bit. Um, but I don't know. I, th I think they were okay because I was happy. Mm. I was at my happiest in my career. You know, I'd, I'd come back off that tour. I'd been pushed into a promotional course. Um, and so I was definitely at my, at my happiest. And all of my reports that were coming back, um, you know, a bit like your progress reports or whatever you want to call them now, were all really good. Um, so I'd found, found my calling, I think. I think it was something that, that was good for me, was right for me. And so, yeah, my mum and dad were okay. I think, yeah, they were really happy for me. It must have been a relief for them as well, I guess, seeing that you were, you were safe and, you know, physically yeah. safe. 
yeah. um, and you were you know, yeah, back, definitely. back home. So let's fast forward. Yep. What was it like hearing the news? Well, I guess you might have known him in advance, but we're going back again, yep. having experienced what you'd experienced. What was, what was the feelings that time? So going back again, it was, I felt like I was the guys before that had been before and suddenly my face changed as we flew in. And it was, this time it was a summer tour. So we knew that was, that was a bit busier for us. Um, and yeah, I was nervous. Um, this time I'd been on a promotional course. So I had a bit more responsibility. Um, you know, there were guys under me that hadn't been before that I was sort of going to be helping and, and coach and get them through it. So there was a bit of responsibility there. So very different. Um, to the first tour it was just so busy with with contacts and things you know towards the latter end of the tour the start we were with the Welsh guards so the Welsh guards I'd spoke about earlier after the first tour that we've seen and they're a bit shook up and this time we got to spend the first sort of three three and a half months with the Welsh guards um, which is interesting mixing English and Welsh together um, <laughs> it's a bit like a rug- rugby match um, but it was, it was very good to see how they operate um, and to pass things on to each other. And that, that was quite interesting. Make friends that I, I wouldn't have known otherwise. And so the positives that, that come out of that. And then we were back with our regiment, back with the Grenadiers towards sort of the end of the tour. That, that just got extremely busy. A lot of injuries, you know, a lot of IEDs, a lot of sort of gunshot wounds. Um, that was a very, very busy sort of side of the tour. What's it like being in a, in a contact it's strange, you know, so you know it's going to happen. Most of the time, you know it's about to happen. So we would have an interpreter and we would listen to, you know, the, the ICOM chatter, which is the Taliban talking to each other. And we'd be listening to it and you know that they can see you. You know they're setting up in position. You're trying to figure out where. You're also trying to figure out the best route for you to go because they know they've buried explosives on your route. So they're trying to push you into their area, their kill zone. And you know this. Um, and so you're just waiting. You just wait. And sometimes you do a bit of a come on, you know, try and bring the contact on early. Um, and then the moment that first round comes in, depending on how close it is, and you can always tell how close it is with the, with the sound, and just this rush straight away. Um, and it's very hectic. There's a lot of shouting. A lot of, but there has to be, because it gets loud. When all the weapon systems are firing up, and it, it gets very loud. But it's, there's no panic I don't think I've ever panicked in contact. Um, there's moments where if you really allowed yourself to, then you would panic, but you literally haven't got the moment to panic. You know, if you're a commander, you're trying to make sure that your guys are doing the right thing and, you know, aren't going off, off piste because it's very different to all of the training you did prior. Um, you know, you can't just go running off. You have to stay in your lane. And if you're not in command, then you're listening in for commands and you're making sure you're doing the right thing it almost slows down. Time almost slows down. You know, you're trying to figure out where the enemy are. They already know where you are. Um, So you're trying to figure out what's the best plan to get them or to get out. And then you just try and fight your way through it as best as you can. There is fear there. Anyone says they're not scared is is lying. There is this amount, immense amount of fear. But at the time, you don't really think about it. You've got so many other things to think about. It doesn't really cross your mind until afterwards. I think you mentioned earlier that you were you were using humour yeah. to deal with you know, tough yeah. types of experiences, and you were going to share a story for us about the. Second oh yeah, so um, <laughs> so probably, one of my best friends that I was that was in the army with, um, he was really close to me and to Jamie when he had died in the first tour, and um, when we went away on the second tour, we'd got split up, and I thought oh, I'm not going to see him now, so I, we said our goodbyes, and. 
he was always known for having the best kit. He'd spend money on kit, like really spend money on it and have the best knee pads to gloves, to glasses, to everything you could attach to your body armor. And he'd, everyone was sort of thinking, blimey, I'd love all that kit. So you buy that um, additionally to what you're given? Yeah, you buy it. Yeah, you buy it additionally. All Gucci kit. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you look, you're a better soldier if you look good. You know, that's, that's, that's how you think. That's actually it. a bit like life, I um, think. You know, like, you know, they always say if you're going to go for an interview, obviously you're going to dress up smart because you're going to act smarter. Is that the same thing with military kit? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's definitely, you know, you've got to look the part. Um, <laughs> I never knew that. <laughs> and it, it just, for not, he had, so he had this phenomenal kit, and obviously we weren't with him at the time. Um, and now he got blown up, and he didn't lose a limb, but he had quite severe shrapnel wounds in his legs and his finger. And, um, and I remember speaking to the guys when we met up with him a, a week later, and he'd, uh, he was on the stretcher. And instead of everyone sort of caring for him, they made sure obviously he was he was okay and they patched him up. But they started taking his kit off him. <laughs> started taking all of his Gucci kit. And he knew that back at camp, where there was there was the Ford operating base where they were, he had a load more kit and it was just ransacked. Oh, absolutely ransacked. <laughs> and it's just in that moment where someone's injured and you should be caring for them, you obviously care for them. But once you know they're okay, a bit like when someone falls over, you laugh hysterically when you know they're okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his kit was just absolutely ransacked. Um, <laughs> and there's just there's just many things like that on the tour where you just you've just got to find humour in it, um, in everything, because that's what gets you through. And you know you're closer to those people than you, than you are to your own families at times, because they know things about you that your own families don't know. I think if we flip that into like you know Civvy Street and the lessons we take away from that is, yeah. um, you know, what is that for you? Is that finding positives in like extreme, you know, violence and negative, technically negative situations? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You, you, you have to try, try best. Sometimes it's easier said than done. Um, but finding the pot, there is a positive to every single situation in civilian life for me now, negative things that have happened when I look back on them now and think, actually, I'm kind of glad they did because the positives I can take from that and what I've learned from that, I, I may have never known and mm. it's the same within the military everything that happens negatively you learn from for, for next time because ultimately things come around um, and you learn from your mistakes well so you said last time the uh, on that first tour when you know jamie got blown up yeah you said even though that was an extreme negative the positive yeah. made all the guys like way more alert and yeah and, yeah definitely and looking you know yeah so how is it coming back home after the second tour and what were your emotions then? Um, so on the second tour, when I came back, uh, we did get some some time off. Um, and the reason I got so much time off was because I was going on another promotional course. So it was nice just to have that time at home. Um, very, very different because towards the end of, of the tour, people that had been away before started to show signs. And this was the first sort of understanding of, of mental health within the army. You know, you start to see things uh, one of my best friends that I started training with, I met him on the first day of training. Um, after the second tour, he developed this really sort of severe OCD um, to which he couldn't just lock a door once. There was a set amount of times he had to open and close a door and dropping him off anywhere in the car was awful because he just constantly opened and closing this door. Um, and that's the first time for me that I started to see things like that. Um, the first time you you know you realise you know fast forward a few months I'd I'd, I'd had a few injuries um, I'd had sort of a, a wear and tear injury in my ankle 
um, and then I'd torn every part of my knee pretty much and needed a reconstruction on my knee and so I'd made the decision there was something to change in my head an enjoyment factor had gone I don't know what it was something had changed I don't know if it was the fact there was no more tours booked in so I said before about the schedule there was nothing in our schedule and so it was almost like my purpose for being in the military had gone you know once I got injured and I was on crutches and I was you know, I was desk bound almost um, I thought well I don't know if this is for me anymore and so I decided to, to sign off, which is the seven clicks to freedom known across the military world. You go online, you go on our intranet and it takes you seven clicks and you're out the army. And I've done that on a, on a night barrack guard. So we, we protect our camp in the UK and we have, we have people there just for visitors. So, you know, visitor in, visitor out. And I remember doing that on the nighttime and just doing my seven clicks to freedom at about midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Um, and then the next day or the day after I was pulled into my company commander's office and he was like, here, you want to leave? And I was like, yep, yeah, that's me. I want to go. And you have to give 12 months notice. You can leave before that if you can confirm a job, if you can confirm a career that you're going into, you can leave earlier. Um, but the military offer training courses and funding to do things if you stay for that period. So I thought, well, I'll stay for 12 months. I'll get some qualifications and then I'll, I'll go. Um, and that was the biggest change for me. All of a sudden, my identity that I had was starting to go. I felt a bit uneasy. You know, I had friends around me. I remember one, one person that was in the room next to me had quite severe mental health issues, and he was medically discharged. And he was being mocked by people for his mental health issues. He had never been in contact with the enemy. He had never been in contact. And he was almost being why do you feel like that? Why have you got these issues? And, and that was the first time I'd started to see that side of it as well. So the lack of understanding amongst us all on mental health at the time was then meaning for a bad repercussion. I would love to ask you that. I was going to ask you earlier was in Ike from the outside in very macho environment. Yeah. You know, guys who are physically fit. Yeah. Who are doing some extreme things. Yeah. What happens when someone actually says, or does that even happen? Like, I'm not feeling okay, lads. Like, <laughs> no, not... um, I'd love to say nowadays that that goes on, but it wasn't. And certainly in your dad's time, definitely not. No, um, no, no. You know, uh, as it was, we had thing called trim officers, which are like your trauma management. You know, they're the people you can go and speak to in your regiment. If you're feeling a bit down and you're stressed out and you can go and speak to them, but they were your regimental sergeant majors, your company commanders, the really high ranking people. What young soldier is going to go to the, you know, what young member of staff day one, week one is going to go to the big boss, you know, the director and say, I've got a bit of an issue. They're just not, you know? And so at that time, no one was really talking about it. And the drinking culture was, was on massive proportions and people were going out every single night and drinking and drinking and drinking, you know, the, the corporal's mess, the sergeant's mess, you're in there, cheap alcohol. And that was the culture of it. And then you're out for a run at seven o'clock in the morning, but no one ever spoke about that, you know, and if the impact that had on people, and especially with their home lives, you know, you see a lot of relationships breaking up with people in the military and it's really tough on people to have a home life um, because it's something so, so away from, from normal life it's almost a bit lord of the flies uh peter pan and, and the lost boys kind of <laughs> kind of environment you've got people from school you know that have joined straight from school and that's the only thing they've known i hadn't paid i hadn't paid a bill i hadn't done anything when i left the army and i, I got a mortgage 
I'd never paid a bill in my life apart from a phone bill. So ten pounds on paid for uh, yeah, yeah it just <laughs> you know. What? How old were you when you left the army? Twenty-four. So you, how long did you serve? Seven years. And wow. and again, none of that was within my plan. My plan was twenty-four years. That was my original plan. And so when my mindset started to shift, it was all all new. Um, luckily, I was you know I was a, a physical training instructor while I was in the army, so keeping the guys fit. And so for me to transfer then into being a personal trainer on, on Civvy Street was probably the easiest thing for me to recognize. Um, I think a lot of guys I, I know in the military have done that. You know, PT seems like a natural fit sometimes because of the, yeah. the physical stuff. So yeah. you become a PT. Yep. <laughs> like your first day in Afghanistan, what was the first day? Right, um, You can really remember in Civvy Street. So a few days in, I get pulled into the office with the boss um, and he, I thought he was ex-military when I met him, but a lot of his friends were ex-military. So that's where I thought, okay, I can recognize something here and I can get on with him. Um, I'd told some customers, you know, some members of the gym where to go, but with some more fruitful language um, because there was a piece of equipment that was broken and I was the only member of staff in on that Sunday because I was working seven days a week. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to really push for it here. It's quite a competitive environment. Um, and <laughs> I said, well, okay, well I'll note it down on, on the computer for you, but there's nothing else I can, I can really do right now. Well, it's been like this for weeks. They said, I was like, so I, I could feel myself boiling up. I said, I know, I, but I'll try and deal with it now. And they said something else and I just lost it. I absolutely lost it at them. Um, I was told that I cannot speak to customers that way. Um, so very quickly, I, I had to learn. I had to learn to change my personality or felt like I had to change it to fit in because it was all completely new. You know, if you messed up in the army, you pulled into the office and it's one or two things. I'm either going to charge you or it's going to be physical. And even if it was physical, it never gets spoken about again. And it's dealt with. You can't do that in, on Civvy Street. You can't tell someone off physically, you know. And so very quickly, it just, I felt alienated. I didn't want to be around my school friends. I didn't want to be around people there. I'd, I'd go to work, I'd come home. You know, I'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and I'd get home at 10 o'clock at night and I'd do that five or six days a week. And then at the weekends, I'd probably do, you know, eight, nine hour days at the weekends as well. Um, I want to ask, what were, you, what were you running from or what were you suppressing in working like that? At the time, I just thought I had the mindset to put in those hours and I dealt with worse. So I'd been through mm. worse. So what? I, I do 15 hours. I'll only get a few hours of sleep. I don't care. I've been through worse. And the environment that you're in, the only way you earn money is through the sessions that are coming in. You're on zero hour. And the more sessions you put in, the more money you got paid per hour. You know, it's really competitive. And I thought, no one knows who I am. Nobody knows who I am and I'm coming in here fresh. So I've got to really work at it and I'll just put in the hours. And, and luckily a couple of ex-military guys came in. And so straight away, I then built friendships with them, instantly built friendships. And that's how, you know, my business partner now, that's how I met him. Um, and you just warm to each other. And we were the only ones in every day of the week at half five in the morning, ready for the gym to open at six. We were the only ones there at 10 o'clock at night because in our heads, we dealt with worse. And so we were happy to put it, but all that was doing was just, just running me down, running me down. Um, but at the same time, 
it was really exciting. It was almost that same excitement as going on tour again. You know, I was learning all these different things. I was meeting all these different people. You know, that's when I first met the parents in the, in the October. I'd started in the June, met them in October. You know, it was all really, really exciting. And that first year or so working there for me was phenomenal. You know, the end of that first year, I got sent down to London for some awards and I was, I was top, you know, I got this prize and I was basically the, the top PT in the UK. And so that was the highest sort of place I could be at that point. And it was really enjoyable. Um, and I thought, well, I've hit this massive high now. You know, it can't, can't possibly drop from here. But then so obviously then, you, have, did it you know, <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you, you know, you know, a bit of the story. And, um, you know, it was 2016. My daughter was born um, in the July. And this, you know, this meant to be the happiest time of your life. For me, that was like a big slap in the face. I'd been told before, it was my partner had said before, when she'd seen my friends from the army struggling with their mental health and really struggling with Civvy Street, she said, you've done really well. You seem to have come off lightly. And I thought I had. I thought I had my, my issues, the same issues that every squad he has, you know, with, with things. I thought, that's just, that's fine. Um, and then the day that my daughter was born, this immense amount of emotion um, hit me. And it was just like, you know, hello, PTSD. Um, I had zero understanding of my emotions. It, was, it comes in waves. It was just complete shock and awe. My fear, my insomnia, my nightmares. It, you know, I'd wake up sort of double, double figures. I'd wake up in the night just screaming. It wouldn't necessarily be my daughter awake. It'd just be screaming that I could hear. You know, my partner would wake up and I'd be stood in the middle of the room, just stood up, not knowing where I was, looking around, just really confused. Um, you know, I'd be just crying, driving to work, crying to work, then putting a smile on, doing a 15-hour day, helping clients, getting back into the car, crying my way home. Huge. This emotion was, was huge for me. I didn't understand it. Um, suicidal, just wanting to throw the car off off the side of a road just there's so many different things that I, I just didn't understand um and it was, it was a good year or so good year maybe nearly two years i went on like that was um, this just be due to years of of not dealing with your emotions or not knowing how to deal with your emotions yeah yeah because when you go through things and like we'd said earlier in the conversation when something happens when someone is killed or injured there's no time to think you do your consolidation you have a quick sort of discussion, debrief, but then you, you back into it. So all of these issues have now become a long-term sort of problem and you've just not dealt with them and you've not understood them. And again, all of that resentment and things that I'd spoke, for, spoke about before, for people that didn't understand you, they, that would all come to light and your paranoia just, just through the roof. Mixed in with being a parent, it was a new fear I'd never experienced and it almost brought everything back. Um, you know, when you're over in Afghan and you see how people live and it makes you really respect what you've got and you think we're so lucky and it just, it makes you think as a parent, I can give them so much more. The people in Afghan want to give their children everything, but they can't. They haven't, they haven't got the money. They haven't got the resource. Um, and so I think it was just a mixture of everything, a mixture of the work life, you know, having a lot of pressure. I was the earner for the household and, you know, it's, from one moment you could be earning, you could earn two, two and a half grand one month and you could earn a grand and a half the next month because you didn't hit your target. You know, there's no set hours here. There's no set rate. Um, and I think it was just all of that, all of that come to light. And that lasted, when was it? Summer of 2018. Um, 
I had to phone a soldier's charity and it wasn't on my own. It wasn't my own choice to phone them anyway. I was pushed. Not by your partner? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think everyone had seen the change. I think, you know, if you spoke to your parents about that time, the timeline of it, they'd probably seen a massive change, um, you know, from training them. And I rang this charity, fantastic charity. Um, what are they called, and, by the way, so you can plug them? Uh, so the, fir- the first charity was Combat Stress. Um, and I'd had a phone call. So it was a triage call just to see how it was and just figure out if I needed a bit of a chat. And I broke down on that, <laughs> on that phone call, the poor nurse on the end of the phone. I just, I did feel for her. Um, and just, just expressed everything to her. Um, it then, you know, I had a huge panic attack in the car and it was, it was on a break in the day between clients, I had a huge panic attack. I then canceled every single client for that day. Um, and went home and again I didn't say anything to my partner when I got home I just I was just noticeably different and it wasn't till the October that they could fit me in for a face-to-face and I went up to Derby for a face-to-face again for like another triage just to figure out okay in person what can we do what's the issue here and I've never felt so disconnected I stood in Derby, Derby Centre just looking at everyone on go by and just couldn't figure out why why am I like this? Why are you not like this? You know, why am I seeing every sort of issue here? You know, my walk from the car park to the city centre was like I was on patrol again. You know, I'm hyper aware. I'm, I'm aware of everything going on around me. I'm looking for escape routes. I'm, you know, and it's silly. And in your head, you're arguing with your head at the same, same time saying, what are you doing? You know, you're seeing people across the street and already when you see them across the street, you're doing a full A to H for them. So you're looking from head down to toe. What are they wearing? What do they look like? Why are they like that? What's their body position? Why are they doing that? And it's like you're sussing them out from a distance so that if anything happens, okay, I can take cover there. Okay, I can go there. And it's, it's just crazy. And you, you're telling, at the same time, you're saying, this is crazy. What? You know, why am I doing this? And by the time I got to the, you know, the office and spoke to this woman, I was an absolute wreck. And she just said to me, if we could send you away now we'd send you away you know and you do six weeks away at this retreat to try and get your head right but you know, i said to her i'm i'm the breadwinner i can't can't take that time off and so from there they pushed me on to another charity uh, which was walking with the wounded um who i'll be doing some stuff with them over over the coming months and we've got a a challenge in october that i'm that i'm doing with them and they're they're fantastic and they're who funded my therapy and I had one-to-one therapy for nine, 12 months. And I, I couldn't fault, you know, this woman that was my therapist had dealt with soldiers before, but she'd dealt with so many different other sort of issues and, and backgrounds. And after my first session, she made me change my work situation. She said, this is having a huge fact. This is a huge factor for you. Um, and so I went and changed my work situation. I stayed where I was, but there was a more secure way of me earning money. It was becoming a master trainer. I'd been approached about it before. Uh, it just meant that I was a little bit more expensive than the other trainers and earned a little bit more, but it was, it was confirmed. And so straight away, that was a huge, a huge weight off my shoulders. And that's the thing we want to think about here. Like everyone's going through their own stuff and yeah. everyone's got the biggest challenges that they're facing at the time. Yeah. And I remember my first conversation, I was at a really low anxious point and just, again, talking to someone and expressing what's going on is also just really important. Just making that first yeah. step, that first call. Yeah. It's vital. Now, you don't have to go and have been in Afghanistan for that. You can go be going through your own stuff. Oh, definitely, yeah. 
So what's your bit of advice off that, you know, kind of story of actually talking to someone and, and getting help? When you're, fear, when you're in that position, you think that either, you know, are you the only person that feels like this or is, are your thoughts silly? Because at the same time, you're trying to, this logical, sort of illogical, constant back between each other in your brain. And, you know, you're trying to say, well, no, if I say this, I know this isn't, this isn't how I should feel. I know this isn't going to happen. But and you're constantly battling with yourself and so all i'd say to anyone is it sounds really cliche but do just talk just open up the moment that i started to learn to open up and talk to people you know and tell all my clients how i was feeling tell my boss how i was feeling tell them why and what was going on the moment you realize that we're all quite caring creatures we all want to help sometimes we don't know how to help if something's far surpass our qualification or knowledge we give the help that we think we know, which might be a pat on the back, a cuddle, or just I'm here. But we all want to help. And I think that's what you realize. Once the moment you open up and you say something, people do just care. And they, they've, they've noticed a change already. You think you're hiding it really well, but they've noticed a change. They just didn't want to force you because when you're forcing someone, that sort of defense mechanism kicks in and you push them away. And so maybe in their head, they they just don't want to approach it. And my parents were the same. I remember telling my parents as if it was some big news. And as I'm sure we've known for a long time, you know, and, and I couldn't express any more. Just, just talk to someone, whether it's a, an email, a message, a, whatever, anything you can get across to someone, there will be someone for you that you feel comfortable around. And anyone that you feel comfort around, use that. Amazing. And well, great bit of advice, expressing, don't suppressing, as you always say. Mm -hmm a student breakthrough since then you've gone on to create an amazing gym called chamber yeah. chamber yeah. well-being what was it like leaving a i guess a regular gym where you're getting employed yeah and starting a business <laughs> which uh, by the way what an achievement i just want to say massive oh, achievement yeah. from because you see many pts many people in fitness who who don't want to take that leap and i think in, yeah. obviously business is scary yeah but you're like i want to do something else yeah. So actually, let's go back. What was the reason you wanted to, you know, run a business and, and work? Um, so, so my my business partner James, um, he was ex-military as well. So we always really got along, and we just said, you know, we both wanted to own a gym, and there was all these kind of dreams that we'd always had. And the business came around by fluke. Um, we were approached by someone that works in the youth offender system, and said, look, I'd love to use you and you come along and just speak to the guys you know you're ex-military you're gonna have a, a certain way of working with people can we can we just try it and originally it was just for a bit of fitness and they approached me and this was at my worst time as well this was when my my own health was at its worst um and so i went along with james and in that first session very quickly it took away from fitness and they were asking us questions and they were engaging with us like they'd never seen before and you could see the staff looking at each other and saying, what's going on? And it must have been the ex-military thing and the fact that what we've experienced, they've saw an interest in. Um, but also, we looked at them as a blank canvas. You know, I looked at, there was this teenager who had had a huge drugs background. Now, I could have judged him there and then and the stuff that he'd done, but he was incredibly smart. The way his brain worked was phenomenal. And so that's what we picked up on. We picked up on their, their positive qualities and that's what we really pushed. And that's how the business started because one of the managers said, we need to pay you. We weren't being paid for this. And they're like, we need to pay you. So you need a bit, you need to be 
be able to invoice you. <laughs> and so this is how we create the business. And the first year of the business, year and a half, was all with the police, with ex-offenders, young offenders. And, you know, and it was a fantastic way to sort of give back to the community, that first element. Um, but as a business, it's, it's quite hard as a limited company to, to do that and, and earn money. So we were still at our previous job. Um, and then we saw a, a gap in the corporate world and thought, let's go, let's go corporate. There, there must be issues there. You know, all of our clients are in the corporate world and our jobs had developed not just PT, but now we were coaches. There were clients that I would just coach and it would be their mental health. And it, again, I talked earlier about taking a positive out of the situation. My issues now I was using as a positive because I found that I was more of an empath. I was starting to understand a bit more how people felt and why they might feel like it. And so then we, we pitched for this corporate contract where we would go in and help people. And again, we thought that would be a lot of fitness, but that turned out to be 90% mental health, which was just phenomenal to see in one sense. And blimey, that this must be across the board. This isn't just confined to one site. This must be across the board. And so we then really started to put the work in there. And then it just sort of fell around. We, we pitched for this big, big contract in the corporate world. And again, everything just sort of falls into place. And we, now I'm talking big, big contract, and we didn't get it. We thought we were going to get it, and we didn't. And that day afterwards, I was so down. I was upset. And all the, again, the, these other feelings I'd had in the past just came back to me. And it was a good 24 hours. I let that take over. And something got inside my head and was like, you're not going to be able to change your situation if you don't move off this sofa. Now, if you don't sort yourself out, because bearing in mind at this time, I'd left my job. I'd left my PT job because I'd burnt out because there's other things, you know, to do with my, my mental health. We haven't gone through. And I, I just left my job and thought I need six months off. And I sort of put all my eggs into this one basket and then we lost it. <laughs> all the eggs had cracked. We'd lost the contract. Yeah, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do. And it was two days later, a discussion of the gym came around. And within three, three and a half months, the gym was open. So just out of nowhere, this, <laughs> this, you know, from being turned down from probably the biggest contract of our business so far to then, right, we've got our first gym. And I remember my old man who has run businesses, not anymore, but for his whole life. And he always said to me yeah. when I was younger in the car, he said, you're going to wake up one day and have a great idea. Yeah. And I remember sitting in the park once and I was just writing down, businesses that I could use in education or run in education and I was trying to force it and it was yeah. only when I was at my lowest and I experienced coaching and then went back into school and realized that this could really help you know students but it, it, then I had that big like breakthrough moment but it's all organic just like your your story as well I think some people look at entrepreneurs and, and you as yeah. a gym that oh Sean just just knew what he wanted to do he was focused and driven and that comes into it but yeah. also just it's about sitting back and just life kind of definitely yeah. as well you know yeah you know and I always think to myself what if the first people when I had this idea what if the first people around me were negative so I phoned my dad when we realized this you know we'd been to view it and it was all exciting and we could vision it and you know, I phoned him <laughs> and I said to him, what's the best way to go around this? Do I get an investor? Or do I go to the bank? And if he there and then had said to me, I don't think it's going to work, Sean. I don't think this is going to, probably wouldn't have done it. Mm. He just said to me, how much do you need? How can I help? This sounds great. And for, for that, first, that first conversation, to be around someone that positive, that again, has ran business for, for all of his life. And I just think, 
the difference that made and you know you could we could talk for hours about the people that you surround yourself with and yeah. you know your friendship and things that's really so important the people that you work with and the people that you surround yourself with inside your friendship circle will ultimately build you up or bring you down and to have people like that around me and me and james work off each other we build each other up if we were negative around each other all the time you know it's it's not going to be good for the business um wow. and so yeah then we just just ran with it we just went for it yes yeah, classic uh it's a classic jim Rohn quote you know the, the average of the five people you hang out the most with and definitely definitely i think you learn that as you get older it's quite hard at school to do that and it's still quite hard as an yeah. adult to, to oh, distance well, yourself with some people yeah it's really hard um and for people that don't you know think oh, i want to do something but i don't have a clue i don't have a clue you know, me and James sat down with our solicitor for our first ever you know, meeting to sort out this contract. And she said, okay, how, what shares have you both got? And we looked at each other blankly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, this was all new to me. All this, I've got an idea. I've got this, but I don't know. So then use the people in that, in that field that have got the knowledge to teach you, just like you teach other people. Mm. And that makes such a difference. And then you learn as you go. You, you really do just learn as you go. Yeah, and that's it every single day with this. And I think in life anyway, but when you work for yourself, there's so much new stuff. Like we're three episodes into the podcast, you know, I'm slowly getting yeah, there oh, as well yeah. with that. And yeah. it's not instant, but you just got to just kind of take the leap yeah. and then work your way out. I think someone said yeah. a great uh, quote about entrepreneurship. It's like, it's jumping out of a plane with no parachute and trying to build a parachute yeah. on the way down. <laughs> yeah. it definitely feels like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sean. Um, the question we end the podcast with is yeah. what piece of advice would you give to a student or a young person um, yeah. today? Self-belief. That self-belief, it can be the thing that either drags you under or pushes you to succeed where you want to go. So don't let that idea, that dream that you've got, because if it sounds silly or, or you're worried what people think or it's not been done before, just do it. Just just go for it. And again, the, you know, the people that you surround yourself are so important. Everything that you see in front of you, if you were to look in your room right now, everything you see was an idea in someone's head. What if that had never been invented? Or what if that had never, you know, been brought to light? Just that self-belief in yourself and the, the tiniest movement, the tiniest bit of action just ignites this fire. So just having the idea of doing something just creates this fire inside of you and this excitement. And then just keep rolling with that all the time. Keep rolling with it. Um, there's a great quote, where is it? I'll put it somewhere. It's something like an, an aeroplane takes off against the wind. I don't know how true that is. <laughs> I'm not an expert in that field, but you know, you're battling from day one, but don't let that be the thing to stop you. That should be the thing that drives you to succeed. People will tell you you can't do something because they can't imagine themselves doing it. Mm. That doesn't mean that you can't. Well, that is amazing advice um, to end the show with. So Sean, before we wrap up, how can people yep. find out about you? How can they find out about Chamber Wellbeing? Um, yeah, where do they need to go? Uh, so on Instagram, you can look at me personally, which is at Sean J. Franklin, or Chamber is at Chamber Health and Wellbeing, I think. Um, really social savvy me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, if they, if they just search out Chamber Health and Wellbeing online on Facebook or, or Instagram, and they'll be able to find us. Sean, it's been an amazing chat. Thank you for being honest, open and vulnerable and for giving amazing advice. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cheers, Sam. 
Thanks for listening to the Breakthrough Pod. We'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Student Breakthrough. Make sure to subscribe to catch our next episode. Live your best life and have an awesome day.